Calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAD. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detail today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story and we are here to tell it. I think I would have remembered a silly word like that. <laughs> I love how we're 30 years old and laughing our asses off. Strap. But it's also because it's like goat paths. Like what? Like, I don't know. But that's cute. That's true. Because you know how they, they walk do. like that in like little so zigzags. Yeah. It's like you look at a goat walking. You're like, stramps. Hey there, and welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season, we're discussing business bosses and leaders. And on today's episode, we will talk about Cornelia Hahn Oberlander, a modern landscape architect who was a leader in green design. I'm Lizzie Rar, going wine tasting this weekend outside of San Francisco, and I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Jessica Energity. I'm Nerdini Rivas, preparing to host a dinner party in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jessica Rogers, brunching and beaching this weekend based out of Miami, Florida. All right, time for our disclaimer. The three of us could be considered thought leaders. We're not necessarily experts on this subject, though. We're just sharing stories about the information that we find. So if we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Leave us a comment and we will all continue learning. All right, ladies, let's talk about Cornelia. Let's. Let's go. So Cornelia Ann Hahn was born on June 20th, 1921 in Mulheim an der Ruhr, a city outside of Dusseldorf in Germany. She had a younger sister named Charlotte, and her parents were Franz and Beata Hahn. Franz was an engineer and worked at his family's steel company, which was founded by Cornelia's great-grandfather. And Beata was a horticulturalist and wrote children's books about gardening and the benefits of gardening to young children. The family lived in Dusseldorf at first, and soon after that they moved to Berlin, but their house always had a really big garden. Love this story already. You know how I am with plants. Yeah, I bet you like to read those books. But actually, I would too. They sound cute. Yes, they do. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this time in Germany's history was known as the Weimar period. It was a time where modern design and materials were starting to be used. This was the era of the Bauhaus school and many of the modern German designers that we've discussed before on our show. And it was a big influence on Cornelia. Her mom went to dance performances at the Bauhaus, and her best friend growing up lived in a house designed by Eric Mendelssohn in Berlin. The house was very related to the landscape, and Cornelia noticed that. Okay, that sounds great, but they had dancing at the Bauhaus? 
I forgot that the Bauhaus had other programs besides design. Eric Mendelssohn sounded familiar, but I couldn't place him. But after looking at his work, listeners, just think Art Deco and the Machine Age, if you catch my drift, just like all together. It's very cool stuff. Mm hmm. While the first decade of Cornelia's life was during this period of emerging modernism, we know that things are going to take a turn for Germany, mm. right? Yeah. So Cornelia's family was Jewish. And so in 1932, when the National Socialists took over the parliament, her parents started making plans to leave the country. Since Franz had studied scientific management in the U.S. and he had connections there, they decided that that would be their destination. I mean, it sounds like a good plan and it's great that they had a way out. Yeah. But then in 1933, just two weeks after they decided they would work towards leaving Germany, Franz was skiing in Switzerland and got killed by an avalanche. Wait, what? Oh, my goodness gracious. That is horrible. Yeah. So despite Franz's death, Beata still planned to leave Germany, but it likely delayed their departure. When Franz had studied in the U.S., he became good friends with Lillian Moller Gilbreth, a famous engineer who we'll talk about in a future episode. Yeah, one of these days I'll talk about Lillian Gilbreth. Actually, I read Cheaper by the Dozen thinking I would learn more about her because I wanted to talk about her. But <laughs> that really was not the case at all. <laughs> if you want to learn about Lillian, do not read this book. <laughs> but... <laughs> she she was an interesting engineering pioneer, but she also has a few skeletons in her closet that we'll discuss one day. OK, hold up. OK, so listeners, if you are as confused as I am. OK, so interesting fact, the movie Cheaper by the Dozen and the book is actually based off of Lillian's life. But... That is all we will say for now to not give away any spoilers. But yes, in the movie, they never mention that the mom is an engineer. Hence my confusion as well. Lillian would often come to visit Cornelia's family in Germany because she was friends with uh, Cornelia's dad. And especially after Franz died, she would come and see the family. And Lillian had also been widowed. And spoiler alert. Sorry. But that that made her want to help out the family and help them make their way to the U.S. after Franz had died. So Beata also kept in contact with other family abroad and Franz had contacts in the U.K. as well as the U.S. Meanwhile, she tried to keep things as normal for her girls as she could. They still went skiing and garden together. And Cornelia asked her mom years later how she kept going with the rising violence around them. And... Beata said, I envisioned a path, a long, straight path with posts on either side. At the end was our new home. I just kept following that path, never straying from it. That is so beautiful. It's such a positive way to keep going and persevering. Go, mom. Yeah, what a strong mind and will. Right? Mm -hmm. She really just like mm -hmm. kept her head down and was like, this is what we're doing. So... Yeah. Well, on November 23rd, 1938, which was just two weeks after Kristallnacht, Beata Cornelia and her sister left Germany by train. It did prove to be a bit dicey, though. An officer got on the train right before the border and told Beata and the girls to get off of the train. Cornelia's uncle had sent a friend, Sir Alexander Lawrence, to travel with the women. And... Sir Alex, he started speaking with the officer about why they had to get off. And it sounds like he kind of puffed up the officer by being like, oh, I love how lawful this country is. I've really enjoyed it while I was here for my conference. And <laughs> but anyway, while they were talking, the train starts moving again and the officer realizes and he kind of had to like jump off the train because he wasn't supposed to stay on the train. So Cornelia and her family were able to get out. <laughs> And they didn't get forced off of the train. Okay, this sounds like right out of a movie, right? Sure does. I mean, it's so great that they were able to make it, especially to think that one, this is real life. Two, it's such a scary time period. As a refresher, and for those that might not realize, Kristallnacht is literally, it translates to the night of the broken glass. 
It was when the Nazis destroyed thousands of Jewish homes and synagogues and shops. The name derives from all of the broken glass left behind. I cannot imagine what it must have felt like to one, survive that, and then to travel and even move after that. But Cornelia and their family survived. That's incredible. Yeah, it's crazy to think about living through all of that. But I'm glad that they made it. So in 1939, the Hans made it to the U.S., First, they stayed with Lillian in New Jersey before moving to a house in New Rochelle, New York. However, the house didn't have a big enough yard for gardening, and Beata thought the area was too materialistic. So they bought 200 acres of a farm in Wolfboro, New Hampshire, and Cornelia spent a year there helping her mother with the farm, and they donated their harvest to the war effort. That's funny that you mentioned that the mom found New Rochelle too materialistic because growing up, I remember I would go shopping with my aunt to New Rochelle and to the movies. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the first thing that came to my mind when you said New Rochelle. I was like, oh, that place where they do a lot of shopping. <laughs> <laughs> Are there like outlets there or something? I, I think feel it's like a mall. It. Oh, OK. Well, in 1940, Lillian took Cornelia to visit Lillian's daughter at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. The campus had been designed by Frederick Law Olmsted's office, and Lillian knew that the school offered landscape architecture degrees. And I think we've mentioned the Cambridge School of Architecture and Landscape Design in past episodes, but this was a school that started in 1915, and it was founded for women to study landscape architecture because they weren't accepted at other major universities. Okay. In 1938, the Cambridge School had been absorbed by Smith College, so if Cornelia got in, she could study landscape architecture. Wonderful. It's so interesting whenever we talk about landscape architecture, Olmsted always comes up, like always. Yeah, I mean, he had his fingers in a lot of places. Well, Cornelia got in and she started attending Smith in 1940. Yay! This was the beginning of her formal landscape architecture training, but it was also a way for her to adjust to being in the U.S. She wrote about how hard it was to adapt in an essay for her English class in 1941, saying, There are long periods where I don't think of being a foreigner, but then again, a sudden little incident might shake me, throw me back and make me meditate again. It happens sometimes when I go to a friend's. I often have to tell of our escape. I am made to feel like a movie, and I don't feel real. I suddenly notice that there is a high wall between me and my hosts, which neither of us can cross. I feel as if I'm in borrowed shoes, which are much too large for me, and no one can make them fit. Oh, man, that's awful. Yeah, I mean, to have to relive it and tell it every time, that's yeah. a lot. Yeah, mentally and emotionally, that sounds really exhausting. I'm going to try to remember this if I ever meet anyone in a similar situation, not to overwhelm them with questions. Mm. Yeah, I, I tend to like ask a lot of things, but <laughs> sure. I mean, you're curious. I think in that and you situation, want to, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. At the end of the essay, though, she writes, I am determined not to give up. I've made up my mind to adjust myself, discard sentiments and look into the future and learn and understand the demands of America. Wow, that's a lot for a young person to deal with, like to unpack and to suppress. Right. OK, so what stood out to me, though, is that part, the demands of America. I don't know. It just feels heavy, mm. like it feels mm -hmm. real heavy. Um, it also reminds me of that quote that you read earlier, Lizzie, about her mom, about persevering and resilience. So, yeah, I think you can tell how that really affected her and how she kind of, mm -hmm. you know, moved forward in life. Yeah. So Cornelia was at Smith at the same time as Betty Friedan. They actually lived across the hall from each other. Do you guys know who that is? Uh, yeah, that's really cool. Betty Friedan was an American feminist, writer, and activist. She was a leading figure in the women's movement, and she wrote the best-selling book, The Feminine Mystique, where she challenged the idea that women's fulfillment in life was to be a housewife or a mother, which, let's be serious, we are still challenging this idea today. True, true. I have to admit that most of what I know about her is what I saw on Mrs. America, that show about Phyllis... Laughly. 
Mm, I <laughs> and I really, really want to read um, The Feminine Mystique. It's on my wait list, but it's like it's got a really long wait list. It's popular. A lot of people want to read it. Yeah. yeah. Especially now today, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, that show is so interesting. I love that show. Yeah. Um, and the book, that's also on my wait list, too. But that's so cool to have lived across from Betty Friedman. Betty for Dan. <laughs> Sorry, Betty for Dan. <laughs> Were Betty and Cornelia besties? Tell me. Uh, well, <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently Cornelia and her didn't totally agree on feminist theory. So I think part of it, too, I think it was partly a cultural thing also because Betty was really, I guess, just very loud in how she wanted to raise awareness, not only about feminism, but like fascism, war and um, different effects of being a woman. And she and her followers, like you said, they were upset with the idea of motherhood replacing a career. And I think because Cornelia came from a fascist war torn country, she I don't know if maybe she felt like Betty sort of didn't know what she was talking about because she hadn't experienced it. I'm not really sure. But she also grew up in a family where both her mother and grandmother had been women who worked and had children and families and that kind of thing. And so to her, it was never a question about having a career or a family. Right. In her mind, you could always do both. And so I don't know. She she just didn't totally jive with Betty and Long story short, they didn't like each other. They weren't friends, you know? That's fine. <laughs> Enemies. But yes, Cornelia's grandmother was actually one of the first female teachers in Germany in the late 19th century, apparently. Oh, oh that's cool. Yeah. How interesting would it be to be roaming those Smith dormitory halls, like, as this, like, you got two, like, powerful people, like Cornelia and Betty, challenging and debating each other about feminism like that sounds like that would be so cool to like witness and you know like to each their own when it comes to motherhood and careers you know yeah whatever we we can spend hours talking about it but anyway I love seeing that Cornelia was challenging one of the feminist legends you know I I, (laughs) yeah it's a little badass yeah, but in a productive way, too. Not like women belong in the kitchen. Like, you know, it's it's more like just questioning that. So. Yeah, I guess. I mean, since I wasn't there, I can't really have much of an opinion. And well, maybe I really need to read the book to better understand yeah. what there was to disagree about, because the little that I know about Betty, I very much agree with what she was saying but yeah mm-hmm. and maybe anything, cornelia was just a, it was like a, she was on the more conservative end of the feminist but she wasn't saying like she felt like she wanted to work right and that kind of thing so it's like yeah different maybe, levels of feminism i guess right maybe she didn't yeah. agree with the approach like how th- betty was yeah. going about I think it th- from what mm-hmm. i read that's sort of how i interpreted it but i you know i i also don't know cornelia's mind so you know So apparently one night, a bunch of people were in Betty's room debating and discussing different ideas and they were being really loud and keeping people up. So Cornelia knocked on the door and said, if you have a profession, just get to work. (laughs) We are going to need some aloe for that burn. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Aloe's good for burns. (laughs) I mean, to be fair to later in life, Cornelia admits that she had to work twice as hard as a man. Right. She she understood this, like being a woman in this profession and that kind of thing. But she did say she didn't think of proving herself. She thought about the project and how she could get it done. She seems more like I think we've talked about a lot of our women who maybe we don't agree with their philosophy on women in the profession or how they thought about it. I think she was more of that old school kind of thinking, you know. Well, sure. She was focused on getting her job done. But like she admits, it was twice as hard for her to be taken seriously and given credit for all the things that she did because she was a woman. So she was definitely a feminist at heart because feminism is all about creating equality between men and women. That's what it means. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, we shouldn't have to strive to prove anything to anyone but only to ourselves so that's true 
you know, go on, Cornelia, go on. Well, after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 and the U.S. entering World War II, Smith College voted to close the Cambridge Landscape Architecture School and transfer any of the students to Harvard's Graduate School of Design, or the GSD. So, guys, actually, this is how the GSD started accepting women into its program. Oh! (laughs) Because with the war, they lost about two-thirds of their students to the army, and they needed a few more. Uh, so the U.S. was entering World War II and colleges were losing their students, which were mostly men to the war. Mm-hmm. And that's how we get in school. I yeah. mean, OK, I never meant to be like pro-war and, you know, love the guns and machine military. But <laughs> this is probably the one benefit of the war of any war <laughs> that it got women into academia i don't know this is like the one plus side i could ever think about i don't know i never but it's interesting right because i mean i never heard about this aspect of any war of how universities would have to consolidate their resources and students yeah i mean whatever gets harvard to cut the nonsense and accept women i guess (laughs) i mean that's one way to do it yeah yeah Well, anyway, in 1943, Cornelia was accepted to the GSD, and she was part of the second class of women to attend the school. And while she's at the GSD, she studied under Walter Gropius and Marcel Brewer, who we've talked about before. And her parents knew Walter and Marcel from the Bauhaus days, but she also learned from the first wave of modern landscape architects such as Norman T. Newton, Lester Collins, and Walter Chambers. Oh, yes. Our episode 35 lady, Carol Johnson, who was also a landscaper that we talked about back in at episode 35, who studied at Harvard. And in that episode, if y'all will recall, she learned from Newton and Chambers. You know, Carol, actually, she was at Harvard in the mid to late 50s. So maybe there could have been some overlap there. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, she also studied alongside Lawrence Halperin, who would go on to become a famous Bay Area modern landscape architect. He actually designed the FDR Memorial in D.C., among other projects, which I actually I really like that project. It's really nice. Me too. And as we talked about in season four, like Jessica mentioned, Carol R. Johnson would study at the GSD a few years after Cornelia. Well, I'm enjoying all the overlap on this episode. Always. And the FDR Memorial, it's yeah, if you're in D.C., you have to check it out. It's also one of my favorites. It's along the tidal basin. It's peaceful and pretty. So, yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's nice. (laughs) So Cornelia is learning from some very modern leaning professors, but there were still a lot of very traditional Beaux-Arts style professors at the GSD at the time. And Cornelia butted heads with them. Uh Uh-oh. Bremer W. Pond was her studio professor once, and he asked her to design a landscape for a residence and create a formal entrance for the owners and a service entrance for servants. She refused, saying, We don't have service drives because we don't have servants anymore. Everyone enters through the same drive. Mm. And when he asked her to render the project in watercolor, she said, I didn't come here to do washes. Ah! This lady and her, her burns. She's sassy. Okay. She's sassy, this one. Stand for what's right, Cornelia. Challenge the old guard. <laughs> Cornelia is awesome. I feel like this is giving me flashbacks of um, Mr. Eames and how he was <laughs> let go because he was like two fountainheads. Yes. <laughs> See? It's... You know, it happens. I just love, like, I didn't come here to do washes <laughs> with the water. It's like, yeah. Okay, girl, you do you. Well, apparently Cornelia's mom was worried about her drafting skills and she conspired with one of Cornelia's professors and mentors, Henry Frost, to have her take a gap year so that she could intern at a firm and improve her skills. Okay, so Henry Faust was actually the one responsible for bringing women to the GSC. Yes. He is? What did he do? Okay, so it's like a long story. It wasn't just the war. 
But, yeah, it wasn't oh. just the war. You know, there was some other, you know, there was some people behind it. And it's a long story. And, you know, actually, it, maybe it could be a charrette. Yeah. Of how Harvard started to admit women into the program. But it all started with Frost because while he was a professor, he privately tutored a woman by the name of Catherine Brooks. Future episode alert. But in the end, he convinces the dean at Harvard to start accepting women into the program because, as he would say, teaching a woman what we had always considered strictly a man's job was not the painful ordeal it had promised to be. Uh, Okay. Okay, I'm going to take the backhanded compliment. (laughs) And... It's a back end. It, there's more. There's more. Uh, he. No, it's. It's. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, obviously, we're very grateful for him promoting it forward. But yes. that comment is like. <laughs> it's not the best. The fact that but... people thought it was a painful ordeal. Yeah, he was against. Yeah. Saying that, that it's not a painful right, ordeal. Right, right, yeah. Right, yeah. Okay, so keep me in suspense on how this all goes down. But please, let's do a charrette about this because it sounds like something really worth learning. Yes. I'm adding it to our list right now. Great. I, I really am. <laughs> now, I will say, though, the idea of working on a specific skill to help move forward your career it wouldn't hurt to take time off. Like I would have loved to have like an intensive summer to work on like building construction or something tech related that would help me advance in my career. No, no, it wouldn't hurt at all. I mean, I get that as a young person in school, you think you got to focus on something and your mind, your mind, mind, (laughs) the garden of your mind. And your mind is set or maybe you're struggling with something and you vent to your mom and then she goes and helps you in a drastic way. I know about that, too. (laughs) Actually, this really sounds like something my mom would do. So, Cornelia, I relate. I really I really do. Well, Cornelia ends up getting a job at SOM in 1944, but she ended up getting fired after three months, apparently. (laughs) So she was great at lettering, but I guess she couldn't really manage to complete line drawings without ink spots. And at this time, they were drafting on linen. So this is before the days of vellum. So the ink would bleed really easily. Oh. And she couldn't get away with not having any spots. Uh Uh-oh. But anyway, her manager, Scoop Fernell, he felt bad about firing (laughs) her, it sounds like, but... He told her, regardless, I think we'll be hearing from you someday, Miss Han. And let's just say when she was featured in Life magazine years later, she sent him a copy. <laughs> Love it. Think well, it's understandable why she was fired, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad that didn't stop her. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so like now I understand why she needed tutoring then. If she was getting ink spots everywhere. But like they didn't. But, I mean, maybe they tried to help her. But I was like, isn't that the point of her like trying to learn how? Yeah. But OK. Linen. OK. We already know that vellum costs money. Yeah. Because that was expensive when we were in college. I don't even want to know how much it costs to draw on linen. So if homegirl <laughs> was doing ink spots all over. I mean, just got to let it go. Well, she returned to the GSD in 1945 to finish her studies, and she graduated in 1947, making her the first woman to graduate with a landscape architecture degree from the GSD. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. While she was finishing up her studies, she went to a picnic for students at Walden Pond. She brought a dessert with her. It was an Austrian bunt cake called a Gugelhupf. (laughs) So while she's at this picnic, she happened to catch the eye of an urban planning student named Peter Oberlander. And he also happened Mm. to be Austrian from Vienna. OMG, this is like a little Romeo Juliet story. A meet cute. So cute. Well, like Cornelia, Peter was Jewish and had escaped from Nazi Germany to Canada in 1940. However, he did spend time in several internment camps before he made his way to the West. Okay, so not so Romeo and Juliet. It sounds like they were both 
from the same background. Yeah. Yeah. Another story of survival. Well, a few months went by after they first met, and Peter finally called Cornelia to ask her out to the movies. And she said yes. When she showed up to meet him, he was carrying a T-square and drafting supplies. And he told her, I'm working on a management study for a new town. If you help me for two hours, we can still make the late show. What the what? Is this like date ransom? Like, (laughs) I will take you to the movie if you pay for it in labor. (laughs) What is this? Okay, no, Judy, I'm not going to lie. This sounds like something you and your husband would do. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't I don't think it was like a quid pro quo type of situation, but just like we have stuff to do, you know? I wouldn't do it if he presented it like that. What are you talking about? You would be him in this scenario. Like, <laughs> oh, probably. Yeah, that's what I... Okay. Oh, I see, see what it you It would mean. be you the know, reverse. Like, I don't, it would be what a use... <laughs> You know, whichever one. But yeah, I mean, you know, you're busy. You know, people got stuff to do. Yeah. I mean, it's quite a memorable first date, I will say. <laughs> if you say so. Well, I guess that's true. Yeah, I mean, so guys, what happened is they never made it to the late show. Oh, okay. Oh, hey. <laughs> Apparently they spent the next 48 hours working on this project and Cornelia knew sure. that this was the guy for her and she would marry him someday. <laughs> I hope he gave her credit for her work. <laughs> okay, so now I'm curious what movie it was that they missed because I don't know. I'm, I might be annoyed by this. It could have been like a classic now. And what did they do? They were working. But you know, whatever. Go ahead, Cornelia. True love, I guess. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, after graduating, Cornelia moved to Philadelphia in 1951. She served as community planner for the Citizens Council on City Planning. She then started working for Oscar Stonorov while also moonlighting on the Mill Creek housing project with one Louis Kahn. Oh, wow. She was city planner and then she was moonlighting for Louis Kahn. Like, no big deal. You know, how you do. (laughs) How you do. Okay, so now I understand why working 48 hours straight instead of going to the movie sounded appealing to Cornelia because she just had things going on. She just did a lot of stuff. Exactly. So during this time, Cornelia had noticed kids standing around on the street with nothing to do. She also noticed an empty lot in the area. So she went to the town to find out who owned the lot, tracked them down, and convinced them to let her design a park on the lot. She had a real heart for making sure kids had spaces to play in and could be outdoors, especially in cities. Like her mother, she understood the benefits of this. The park she designed got her her next job designing the landscape for an entire housing project, which she made sure had spaces for children in the design. What a great story. She kind of sounds like Leslie Nope. Yes. <laughs> but I really like that she saw a problem and she persisted until she fixed it. That's really, really great. Jessica, do you remember that we were going to join a competition to design a playground, but then life got in the way and we never did it? <laughs> yeah. That would have been cool. Yeah. That, you know, we went to movies instead. You, well, actually, we got jobs that we just got jobs. <laughs> Um, that paid you <laughs> that paid us but so you could go to the movies so that we could go to the movies exactly. <laughs> you know i mean okay we'll think about it that was actually our first summer after graduating from college but anyway that is really cool though about cornelia and for a second there i thought you were going to say that cornelia invented playgrounds or something <laughs> Our ladies are pioneers and are like disruptors of the built environment. So if she if you said it, I would have been like, that makes sense because she's a badass. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, during this time, Peter was working in London and Ottawa, Canada, and then he got offered a teaching position at the University of British Columbia School of Architecture in Vancouver. So he asked Cornelia to marry him. They were married at City Hall in New York City on January 2nd, 1953, and then they moved to Vancouver. Love a good elope story. (laughs) Cute. Once they moved to Vancouver, Cornelia opened up her own landscape architecture firm. 
Apparently at the time, there weren't a lot of landscape architects in the area, and the ones there were either did smaller scale work than Cornelia wanted or were more traditional in their style. Very English garden kind of vibes. Ah, very a la Mariana Griswold Van Rensselaer, season one lady. Yeah, but not very Cornelia. I like this lady. She was like, no fear. Go big or go home. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Well, she had connected with Fred Lasserre, and he helped her get the first projects that she worked on in Vancouver. Her office always operated out of her home, and even though she would go on to work on some very large projects, she never expanded her office to more than a few employees, it sounds like. She wanted to be involved in all the aspects of the design and the process. She said... I get very attached to my concepts. I get very attached to my train of thought of how to get from A to Z and then in the implementation. I have visualized what the design might look like on paper, but I want to be there to see that everything is carried out accordingly. And so if I have a big office and let everyone loose and run around, I wouldn't get what I'm aspiring to. So I thought for a long time, am I having a big office or am I having this boutique? I stuck with the boutique. I can definitely see the appeal of having a boutique firm. When I worked at a small firm, I remember the owner would say something similar. For him, it was more about the close-knit aspect of working with a small team on projects, what some would call, quote-unquote, working like a family. Yeah. Cornelia and Peter would have three children, Judy, Tim, and Wendy, born between 1956 and 1960, She continued to work while she raised her kids. Okay, so that's a really small time span. Three under four. Oof. I hope Pierre was involved in raising the kids too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that I I don't know. But as I mentioned before, Cornelia had a soft spot for children and became a bit of a specialist in playground design. She was asked to design the playground at the Children's Creative Center at the Expo 67 in Montreal. Oh! Okay. Now, I didn't realize that there'd be so much overlap with Carol Johnson. So, right? Yeah, so much Harvard, the expo. Okay. So, quick refresher on Carol. If you don't remember this particular topic on episode 35, because Carol was also at the Expo 67, she did the landscape for Buckminster Fuller's dome. And, you know, she did those barnstorming things that we got on a whole tangent. <laughs> of course. So listeners, if you you have to check out episode 35 if you want to learn more. Okay, man, to go visit during that time though, it sounds so cool. Okay, so like what did Cornelia do for the playground? Right. Okay. So Cornelia designed sand areas, Ooh. shade trees, logs to build with, and an artist's area. There was also a mound and a canal with a boat. It initially had some criticism because it did not have traditional swings and slides. And apparently a visitor said a playground without swings and slides. Why, it's simply (laughs) un-Canadian. However, (laughs) however, the playground was very well received and the same type of design started popping up across North America because they allowed for creative play by children. And it also helped that the cost was less than half of a playground that had jungle gyms and all this equipment on it. Okay, one of my favorite playgrounds in Houston is called Levy Park, and it is just like that. I bet that they were inspired by Cornelia. (laughs) Yeah. Starting that rumor now. But I will have to share pictures of this place in our stories. So look out for that on our social media. I'm not going to lie. I like a good swing. And I like that. (laughs) But, you know, I do like that Cornelia was proposing something new. But anyway, continue, please. Well, Cornelia would design more than 70 playgrounds and also help draft the national guidelines for children's playgrounds. That's amazing. So she didn't invent them. Uh But look at all she did. What a leader in this industry. Heck yeah. Talk about an industry leader. (laughs) Well, Cornelia started to get many larger scale projects after this. She collaborated on several of these projects with the architect Arthur Erickson. They worked together on the Museum of Anthropology in Vancouver and also on Robeson Square. Robeson Square was completed in 1983. 
It is a three-block plaza in downtown Vancouver, which steps down from the city's courthouses and government buildings. Cornelia used a series of stair ramps, or stramps, so that (laughs) anyone can navigate the site safely. The stramps were inspired by goat paths, apparently. (laughs) Guys, I know that... (laughs) It just sounds silly, and it gets sillier and sillier. I know! I'm sorry, I tried to get through with a, with a straight face, but I couldn't. But even though stramps is a hilarious word, they're super nice looking. And I'll have some pictures in the show notes. Okay. <laughs> Once you see it, you'll be like, oh. Yeah, I mean, this is the very first time I've heard of a stramp, but I just... <laughs> looked it up and I know exactly what it is like I've seen it but I didn't know that that was the name could they come have could they have come up with a better name because the name tells you exactly what it is yeah but come on okay yeah um also Robson Square this project is a must see and I'm adding it to our imaginary adventures list it's not imaginary it's happening we haven't written it down. We got to make it happen. Oh, it's in our it's in our head. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. It's imaginary. Also imaginary. known as imaginary. <laughs> but we're going to we're going to make it real one of these yeah. days. Um I know that I've seen stamps before. I've just But anyway, yeah. everyone check out some stamps and we got to check out this Robson Square in person. We, we do. do. Well, Cornelia designed the landscape of the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa alongside Moshe Safti. But she had to argue for her design because apparently the all-male board thought that the design was crazy. I did not find out what about it they didn't like. Probably it was too modern. But anyway, the joke's on them because the design ends up winning the National Award of Excellence by the Canadian Society of Landscape Architects. In your face, all male board of the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa. In your <laughs> face. All up in there. Cornelia was also passionate about sustainable design, particularly stormwater management and green roofs. In an interview later in her life, she said, I've tried very hard in the last decade to introduce stormwater management through green roofs or through wetlands, so that we will take care of our environment in a way that is usual. So that is probably the main thrust. Preach, Cornelia. (laughs) So if Cornelia and Carol are besties at this point, I don't know what. Because if you (laughs) recall Carol from episode 35, she was also interested in stormwater management. I'm going to have to go listen to episode 35 because I don't recall. (laughs) Well, Cornelia said that a green roof, in my opinion, must be aesthetically pleasing, low maintenance, and answer, above all, stormwater management. And you can only do that if you know the correct ingredients of a green roof. She also believed that cities should have bylaws that make green roofs mandatory, like they have in Europe, saying Mm. that we have to replace the ground that the building sits on with a useful park, vegetable garden, or a sitting area on top. We also have to save on electricity and air conditioning and heating. Green roofs cool the building and absorb the heat. Facts. No lies detected. One of her most well-known green roof projects is the Vancouver Public Library, which she designed in collaboration with architect Moshe Safdi in the early 90s. Okay, this is really interesting because when I think of Moshe Safdi, I only think about Habitat 67. So I like that I'm learning about his work, too. (laughs) yeah me too (laughs) this vancouver public library i'm also adding it to the imaginary arc ventures list (laughs) it looks like an unfolded coliseum yeah it does she designed the museum's green roof planting to reflect the changing patterns of light and shadow it has over 16,000 grass plugs and 26,000 ground covers planted in sweeping curves that are meant to emulate the Fraser River. It doesn't require any fertilizing or cutting. In 2004, a one-year stormwater runoff monitoring was done and showed 48% reduction in runoff volume and reduced peak flows during summer storms. Originally, the roof was not open to the public, but it underwent a renovation and partial redesign, which was completed in 2018 
to make it accessible to the public. Guys, we got to go to Vancouver. Yep. Yeah. Sure do. That's really awesome because I was just about to ask you if we can go up there. Mm -hmm. Now you can. So in the early 2000s, Cornelia designed the lobby garden of the new New York Times building in New York City that was designed by Renzo Piano. She actually brought in a scientist who had a program to model microclimates and asked him to measure the wind, sun, shade, etc. of the space they were planning. She then planted her trees exactly where the light was going to fall instead of on a grid. Ooh, I love this. That's so smart. Right? Yeah. At a lecture in 1975 on the subject Women and Leisure, Cornelia said, I am not a women's liber, but I believe in women working and participating in shaping our society. In this, I believe, lies the challenge of our times. Whether we participate as a full-time, part-time, or volunteer worker, in order to do this, we must be educated and have aspirations and confidence in ourselves that we can plan our lives and work hard and assume responsibilities willingly and gladly. We are made of the same stuff. We have brains, we can decide and act, and we need to work just as we need food. And most of us need work in order to eat, especially today. Work gives us a feeling of purposefulness and usefulness, and we derive much satisfaction from this. Preach! Okay, what is with this job at I am not a women's liber? Because I just looked it up, and a women's liber meaning is a person who supports a liberation movement, especially for women. So this so-called women's liber is someone who supports achieving equality between women and men. And isn't that exactly what Cornelia is preaching? That we are made of the same stuff. We both have brains. We can work. We are equals. So maybe I'm just misunderstanding, but I think that's what she's saying. She's a women's liber too. She just doesn't want that tag you know maybe yeah. she is a women's liver she just doesn't like betty so maybe it's a jab at betty <laughs> yeah i mean i think <laughs> this goes back to what we were talking about before that i think in her mind that term or the term feminism maybe has like certain associations for her but i, I don't know she never she would never have called herself a woman's liver but i feel like she was you know she seemed like she was still fighting for equality yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm going to stop because I feel like I'm going to digress and we're going to have a 2-hour podcast episode. We can talk more so. about it in the wrap up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. After we read the book. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Cornelia was awarded the American Society of Landscape Architects medal in 2012, which is their highest honor. She was also awarded the Order of British Columbia in 2016 and made a Companion of the Order of Canada in 2018. Cornelia passed away on May 22nd, 2021, in Vancouver, due to complications from COVID. She was 99 years old. Okay, so like, you mean last year, 2021? Like, COVID? Mm -hmm. The pandemic that we are still currently living through? That's the one. (sighs) One and the same. Yeah. But my goodness, what a long accomplished life. Yes. Her story is really inspiring. A woman that survived so much and had so much drive, passion and perseverance. Really inspiring, even if I don't agree with everything that she was saying. But that doesn't mean (laughs) that I can't learn from her. You know, that's the problem nowadays. People don't want to listen to people that they don't agree with. And I don't want to do that either. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of women, right, that we they say some things that we're like, wait, what? Are questionable. Yeah. Questionable. But, you know. But there's still a lot we can learn from. Agreed. Agreed. The work that she's done. and The work speaks. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I feel like she's lived multiple lives to have just passed away last year. Yeah. I know. But yeah, truly inspiring. It's an inspiring story. I think the fact that she kept her firm small and yet was able to work on such big projects is also really inspiring, Um, especially for this season that we're talking about it. That's true. Yeah, I really like that aspect of her story, too, that she like she did these huge, well-known projects, but was working out of her house with like two or three people, you know? Yep. Well, before we leave you, we have to tell you who our karyotid is for this week's episode. Jessica, can you remind us what a karyotid is? 
Oh, like you didn't know? But for those that don't know, a caryatid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. Each episode will choose a caryatid, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work, and who ties into our historical woman of our episode. Without further ado, this week's caryatid is... <laughs> Meek Young Kim. Meek Young Kim is from Hartford, Connecticut, and she played the piano from a very young age. And then she went to the Oberlin Conservatory to become a concert pianist. She also graduated from Oberlin College with a bachelor's in sculpture and art history in 1989. Rather than pursue a life as a concert pianist, she decided to continue with design and she went to study landscape architecture at the Harvard GSD, just like Cornelia did. I feel like we need a car scratch sound right now. <laughs> <laughs> or a record scratch. Uh, yeah, one of those. You should put that there. <laughs> <laughs> In 1994, Mikyung opened her own landscape architecture firm in Boston. Her firm focuses on restorative landscape designs. They're working to address environmental and health-related issues through their design. The website says, we do this through our research, both in human cognition and in green stormwater technologies. Our goal is to create bespoke experiences that improve civic health by drawing people outside and engaging the natural world. And her firm is currently working on projects in both of your cities, ladies. Oh, OK. OK, so looking at her website, I see that she is working on the Bow Harbor uh, master plan. So, yes, I, I definitely know the neighborhood really well. It's been a minute since I've been to that area. But since I'm going to the beach this weekend, maybe I'll drive by and see where the project is at since it'll be on mm -hmm. my way. So, hmm, very exciting. Yeah, I just looked it up myself, too, about the project that they're doing in my neighborhood. So they're working on Texas Medical Center 3 Innovation Park, and it looks like from the renderings, like a really engaging public space. We've mentioned on this podcast that the Houston Medical Center is the largest medical complex in the world. Right. So this is a big project. Let me read this from their website. As flooding of the concretized bayou is one of the site's most significant threats, the owners have embraced a holistic approach to reducing damage from major storm events. In addition, significant investment in the public realm will create a place that welcomes all Houstonians to enjoy a mixed-use urban district organized around a green necklace inspired by the double helix of DNA. Love their copy editor. <laughs> The all-encompassing strategy involves building sustainability and elevating the entire 37-acre site, increasing its capacity to absorb water. Okay, I just hope this gets built in my lifetime because I really want to see it. <laughs> yeah, I think they broke ground on it. Ooh. Awesome, but that doesn't mean much. <laughs> True, but you know. <laughs> Things here take forever, but maybe. <laughs> Well, I also read an interview with Mikyung talking about how landscape design can help combat the rising rates of childhood obesity. It was a really interesting article that I'll link in the show notes, but I wanted to put a few quotes that stood out to me. She said, instead of focusing on large centralized parks, it's important for us to advocate for more atomized green neighborhood plans where kids can walk through a pocket park, a neighborhood park every day or even twice a day. I like this strategy. I love it. So actually, pocket park means that it's like a micro park, right? It's super tiny. So yeah. landscaping, tiny, small, big, neighborhood sized, it can make such an impact. So it's really great to see that people are still advocating for things like that. Well, the interview also talks a lot about the rise of technology and how, since that isn't going away, how do we design for this hybridized lifestyle that we're now in? Mikyung said, I am not necessarily concerned with kids and their interaction or lack of interaction with the natural world, but more with the kind of digital and analog worlds we're making for them. For example, the homogeneity of 
playgrounds is a real issue. You can go to Omaha or Boston and see the same play equipment. I really feel as a landscape architect that we need to create places that highlight open-ended experiences, places that encourage children to be inquisitive and creative. Her approach to designing for children and her focus on sustainable design really reminded me of Cornelia, but like in a modern context. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'd never thought of that. I think that in a way, it's kind of nice that children in Omaha and Boston both recognize a playground and that they can use a slide and a seesaw. And, you know, you don't want to make it (laughs) (laughs) un-Canadian in Omaha and Boston. (laughs) But, But it's also true that Omaha and Boston, they have their own cultures and climates, their own identities. And it's probably they play differently, too. Or they could. So it's important to study and understand that in order to create a more engaging playground and to create more opportunities for these kids to have fun and play and learn. Yeah. And I think her big thing was like creating an open ended scenario. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not a not a this is for this. Not so only. static. Exactly. Yeah. Like they are now. Yeah. I like that. There was a lot more in the article, but I just picked a few snippets to tease you into going and reading the full interview. Ooh. Meek Young's firm does a wide variety of work, including healing gardens at hospitals or environmental artwork since she has a sculpture background. So go check out her work. Read the article. It's really good. I am totally going to go on the show notes and learn more about this. I am so intrigued. You're pulling at all of my heartstrings. Right. Gardens, environmental art, sculpture. Oh, my God. I got I need to check this out. <laughs> all of my heartstrings. But before we go, we have to say thank you to CMYK for the music. John W., our technical producer. And most of all, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Cornelia and Mikyung along with our banter, and that you are inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thank you. She Builds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, and Gable Media is all about building a better world. It really is. So I really recommend going on their website, gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Looking through their catalog and finding a show that resonates with you Other than ours, of course. (laughs) I just started listening to Details by Cherise Lakeside, an episode called Post-Tension Concrete. It stood out to me because I'm studying for the ARE. And she has a guest talking all about their experience with this cool project. So it's really, really interesting. So go check it out. I recommend it. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your gardeners, landscape architects, your tutors, your boyfriends, your partners, the people that give you bad dates or take you on bad dates. Tell them to listen to the episode and tell them to give us five stars on iTunes. (laughs) Tell them to write us a review. Give us the feedback on Spotify because you can also rate us there. And, you know, this will help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn and uh, learn about these amazing ladies with us. We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com. Or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuildspodcast and on Twitter at shebuildspod. Bye. Bye. Avida Zane. Avida Zane. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, how do you say goodbye in German? Choose. 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 Sorry, I'm texting my sister because I was going to say, I'm what's placing going on my, over my there? burger order. Is it no, a no, lag? No. The lag is Jessica. Jessica being Jessica. It's Jessica being Jessica. Jessica not yeah. listening to us. I log in. I just. She's still on brand, even though she's in Florida. Different state, (laughs) same person. Hey, designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. 
Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if, if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. <laughs> <laughs> the official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today.